Frezine, the queen's senior attendant, watched them from behind the throne as her queen danced like a flame in the wind and the mercurial king like the weight at the center of the earth. Faster and faster they moved, never faltering, until the music shrilled at an impossible tempo and the pattern gave way to a long spin, each dancer reaching in with one hand and out with the other, holding tight lest they fall away from each other, until the music stopped abruptly and the dance ended. This chapter, on the other hand, just keeps going and going and going and going. It's 15% of the entire book. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief, which is in only 282 days. It's November 17th, 2019. And we were discussing before opening, trying to figure out what makes this chapter a unit. Like, what was Megan's thought process when she decided where to put in the chapter breaks? Yeah, generally she has no regularity of chapter length. They vary widely. And this one, it's an energizer bunny of a chapter. You keep thinking you've reached a conclusion, then there's another thing, then there's another thing, then mm-hmm. there's another thing, and it's shifting point of view, which I was wrong about this book. I misremembered it. I thought that there was way less shifting POV than there is. Just as an overview, there's the audience with Relius, Jen talking to Baron Artadorus in the Dead of Night, the king and the queen at breakfast, Sejanus and Erendides meeting somewhere, a paragraph about palace misbehavior becoming more subtle. Costas and Aris talking about the queen. Uh, Jen hitting Costas during training. Costas' day off. Ornan, the king, and the queen at dinner. The dance scene. Costas' letters home. Didi in the garden. Costas and Aris again. Costas telling the king he doesn't gossip. Costas talking to the queen. Talking to the valet. Talking to Sousa. And then, uh, court scenes. <laughs> yeah, Relius and- gets arrested? <laughs> Just like... At the end of this chapter, we throw that in there? Wild. The tone is generally that there are a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, And everything that everybody is doing is affecting everybody else, but nobody really knows what anybody else is doing. Like, there's no one person who has all the information. Yeah. And everyone just has to guess what everyone else is doing. Like, all of these little snippets of people's point of views are sometimes full of, like, what they think the other people know. And then sometimes you see through the other snippets, like, what's true and what's not. But the reader also never has a clear picture of everything that's going on and everything everyone knows. Yeah, and there are a lot of things where you know something's going on. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that Sejanus and his father are up to something. But we don't know what. And I couldn't even tell you what because I don't remember. My knowledge of it's plot details. <laughs> We're learning. is <laughs> just very terrible. And there are two new barons. Armidorus yeah. is new. Mm-hmm. Susa is also new. Also new. It mirrors how, like, Costas's world has really changed and opened up in some ways. Like, he's interacting with people that he never would have interacted with before. Mm-hmm. And honestly, a similar thing is true for Jen. Yeah. He's been dropped into this complicated place, which has had an equilibrium without him. And now it's reacting to him and he's reacting to it. Mm -hmm. We open with Relius and we end with Relius. 
we open with Relius is giving the king and queen a briefing of some kind, and Jen is playing with a coin, and then he's throwing the coin up in the air, and then there's the coin scene. (laughs) (laughs) Where he says, heads you rule, tails I do. And then no matter how many times he throws the coin up, he keeps getting tails. Over and over and over he gets lilies. And Relius thinks that he's doing that on purpose with sleight of hand. Yeah, I never understood that. Because I thought the same thing at first. And then I think you pointed out to me a while ago when I when I when we were just talking about the series some other time, I was like, why does Jen look sick? Because he's manipulating the coin like that. And it's then you the gods yeah. telling him that he must rule. Ooh. He can't escape. Even when he says, I'm gonna leave this up to fate, what fate is telling him is that it's his destiny. Yeah. Sometimes <sighs> it's just you gotta, you gotta lose your hand, and you gotta take over a country, and there's nothing you can do about it. Also, in that scene, Irene kicks Jen in the ankle because he's being annoying, which <laughs> I love. Cute. And he turns to her in outrage. <laughs> <laughs> I get such a kick out of, uh, no pun intended, out of picturing them interacting yeah. in any capacity. <laughs> it's not. The and facial we, do get, expressions. we get a lot of them together in this chapter. Yeah. A lot of people are watching him do stuff and she's very stoic. Mm-hmm. And then she drops some sort of bomb into the conversation. Yeah. And it's a, it's another one of those things where everyone thinks something is going on, but that's really different from what, what the two of them are actually exchanging or whatever. When they're having dinner later in the chapter and uh, one of the courtiers is... is trying to make Jen look stupid and saying, like, oh, didn't your cousins once uh, hold you down in a rain cache until you, like, insulted your family with something super awful? <laughs> and uh, Jen says, well, I could kill you and have you go ask them in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so he, he, his wine cup is empty, and Irene says, take mine. And everyone around them recoils because they know she poisoned her last husband. But he just starts laughing. So they're all thinking, I am assuming that she's, like, making a power show of, like, I could kill you or whatever. But I am... And that he's a clown. It literally says the word clown. Exactly. But tell me if you think that this is what she meant by that. Because what I've always thought is... So back in Queen of Atolia... She said, uh, never drink from my wine cup while you hope to live. So I interpreted her saying, take mine here as saying, like, as a joke, do you want to die right now? And then he says, no fear of that, dear one, replying to the, yeah, the implied I think it's joke. It's similar to when Jen and Irene are both talking to Costas, mm-hmm. and Irene says, I could hang you. Yeah. And that... I mean, obviously, if you were seeing that from a third-person perspective, you'd think that was a threat. But that is a joke between them. Because mm-hmm. if it wasn't a joke between them, I don't think that they could function. No. <laughs> and, and, you know, think what you want about <laughs> how well they function uh, and how healthy do. that is. But, yeah, I think that that's... They were either going to make it a joke or just combust. Yeah. 
And when the music guy picks an Adesian song that everyone thinks he couldn't dance to, uh, him I will have flayed, she said, meaning it. The intolerable tension she felt in Eugenides' grip eased. Her statement had been less calculated than her offer of wine, but it had had the same effect, easing the strain she knew he felt. Yeah, he's so he's so comforted by her violent <laughs> threats. And I think that's also, that one is the possessiveness you were talking about. Yeah. Like, that's part of how she shows that she loves him. <laughs> Another thing that's a little bit like... All right, we got a lot to cover. Yes. Baron Artadorus gets woken up in the middle of the night by a mysterious figure who turns out to be our good old boy Eugenides. Holding a knife edge to his throat. Yes, which is possibly just the hook. Yeah. It's from uh, the Baron's perspective, and he says, The blade was sharp. Never mind how a man without a hand could hold a knife. Which, first of all, he does have a left hand. He doesn't have no hands. And then there's the matter of the knife that he has replaced his other hand with. Like, we don't even have to get into that, and you're already... (laughs) Given me some BS here, Baron Artadorus. No wonder you didn't get away with your tax evasion. <laughs> and then the Baron asks, you will tell Her Majesty about the tax evasion. And Jen says, I am here in the night, holding a knife edge at your throat, and you worry that the Queen will learn about your error? Worry about me, Artadorus. So, oh, that's hilarious that even when he's literally being threatened with bodily harm he still doesn't think the king is a threat and then the rest of his internal narration in that scene says that uh you know he was a fool not to realize that uh, he assumes that eugenides could not have figured it out himself yeah and and he must have been told Mm -hmm. and artadorus must have been betrayed by arendides right jen is not only stopping artadorus here from getting away with his tax evasion (laughs) I can't believe there's so much in this chapter about tax evasion. By mislabeling, misreporting of the type of wheat that you're growing. But Jen is not only nipping that in the bud, but he is creating a rift between Arendides and Artadorus, who had previously been allied. And then I had another question. I did not understand. Um, right after this, directly after this, we get a scene between the king and the queen at breakfast. It's almost all dialogue. It's a few lines of her saying... Baron Artadorus asked to see me before breakfast, saying he needs to go home to check his accounts, and he pretends not Mm -hmm. to be interested. And it says, she warned him with a look, and then uh, at the end, she crossed her arms and refused to speak to him again. What is that about? She obviously knows that he did something to scare the Baron. I think that she's upset that Jen decided that he was going to break into the Baron's bedroom in the middle of the night and threaten him with a knife. Uh, rather than doing something publicly like he's goddamn supposed to. (laughs) Like, he could have put some sort of procedure in motion for formally charging this guy with doing this thing. Yeah. But instead, he decided that he was going to handle it the way he's used to handling it, which is behind the scenes. And that's exactly what she doesn't want him to do. This scene with Bernard Doris. I find it extremely frustrating. It is one of the scenes that I find the most frustrating of 
any in all of these books. The reason for that is that there are three separate references uh, that imply some sort of gay goings-on are going on with Baron Artadorus. Two of them are references to the person he's in bed with, who is kept gender-neutral, but it's specified that it is not his wife. Uh, it says Eugenides had arrived there waking no one, not even the other person in the bed. It says that his bedfellow stirred beside the baron and sat up. No pronouns are used. Uh, and it also says on page 76 of the 2017 edition that the king was leaning close enough that the baron could have taken him in his arms had he been a lover instead of a murderer. So we have what I would describe as a heavy implication here. Mm -hmm. And my question is, why is it an implication? Yeah. Why is that ambiguity kept? And the two options are, one, that the person that Artadorus is in bed with is important, and we're going to find out later. And two, that Megan Whalen Turner, for whatever reason, didn't want to commit to having a gay person even incidentally in the story. And I find that extremely frustrating. Because as a queer reader, I don't want to be led on a scavenger hunt. I don't want to be having to look under the floorboards and under the rugs or constructing an argument for the presence of same-sex desire in the story. Yeah, I kind of feel like it has to be the first one. Because if she were just uh, putting those in there as gay hints, Why are they like, there I don't all? really feel like that would make any sense. I feel like either she would... But, I mean, we're going to revisit this idea when we talk about Thickest Thieves. Mm -hmm. Because it is all through Thickest Thieves. I mean, Thieves. There, is, there is also other implication in this book and in this, in this chapter at the very end of gay relationships. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, there are bisexuals around every corner. But I think... But it's all, it's all hints. Right. While the straight people are just there. But these are definitely deliberate choices to keep it gender neutral in the scene. There is no... She would not have wound up with the word bedfellow just as a matter of course instead of something gendered because the gendered words are the the, the norm like the neutral yeah it's definitely so those are deliberate choices it's definitely deliberate i think my pessimism <clears throat> is that it's deliberate because homophobia dictates that one should be cautious about putting people who aren't straight in a book aimed at young people yeah. And I think that the optimistic interpretation is that there is some sort of plot-relevant secret. But I can't help falling into the pessimistic view because there are so many opportunities yeah. to take these relationships out of that ambiguity. And just, like, the only thing it would take from most of these relationships is a small step. Because they're all they're all right there. there. This is a little bit disheartening. Yeah. Who knows what we'll find when we crack open Return of the Thief? <laughs> it does feel like something she would do though, to put in some tiny hint about, you know, Baron Artadorus had a, a lover and then you find out later it was whatever. I don't know. I actually thought like it would have made sense. We know later that Legarus in Aris's squad gets them promoted upward because he had a lover in the palace. Yeah. So it would have made sense for Legorus to be in the bed, but that was never brought yeah. up yet. So that's just a, like, know. we can guess at those things. Right, but it's not confirmed. I think the dinner where we get a narration from Ornon's perspective is really interesting um, because he has a lot of thoughts about 
Jen that are uh, pretty revealing, I think. Yeah. Uh, he talks about how Jen's outsider status in Atolia is exactly what makes him needed as king because Atolia has reached the point where she can't do anything more to unite her barons. She can control them, but she can't unite them. Mm-hmm. And for the same reason, none of the barons could become king because they all have loyalties to each other and uh, enmities and histories with each other. And so Jen coming in as a neutral person is the person who has the potential to unite everyone. Mm-hmm. But... And they need to be united because when the Medes come... Exactly. If it's if they're not united, the whole country is gone. But Ornan is also thinking about how at least part of the Atolians' resentment of Jen and the dismissive way that they think about him is ethnically motivated mm-hmm. because they think that they think that they're the only ones capable of subtlety and wit and so they don't recognize his barbs as barbs mm-hmm. and they think that anything that he says that is cutting is just an accident yeah. because people from Edis are uneducated mm-hmm. and barbaric and not refined and so it's Jen's identity as an Adesian that makes him the person for this job and also is making solidifying his presence there so much more difficult, Mm -hmm. which is a cool tension. Yeah, it's really interesting. So right after we get those pages of Ornan's narration is when that courtier, uh, like, asks that question about Jen's cousins and, uh, like, Jen replies and then it says... Ornan cursed himself for even thinking about Eugenides' past, as if his thoughts had stirred Eugenides' more malevolent aspect to the surface. Which I highlighted because, as I'm sure you must know, the word aspect is used for gods, and gods have aspects, as regular people do not. Eyes emoji. Eyes emoji. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those things where, like, your second or third reread, you go, you look at that, wait a, wait a minute, wait a, wait a second, wait, wait a minute. And then also, Ornan's, like, relieved and also angry that the Aetolians don't know how close they came to disaster with Jen. And then uh, it says, that one, he thought, looking at the courtier's white face, had looked Eugenides in the eye, and he knew how close to disaster he had come. So I saw in that um, a parallel to Hephaestia. Like, I think it says at the end of the first book that Jen thought in the temple if he was going to die, he would do something that very few people had done since the world was made, and he looks into Hephaestia's eyes. Mm-hmm. So I think this is another example of, like, you know, a, a parallel with the gods. And I, this is also related to how Costas thinks of Jen and Irene both. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a later scene right after, like, the queen is, like, livid about freeing Talaeus and Costas says, like, Costas's narration says that she had passed very close to him and he felt like if she had just turned her head and met his eyes, he would have died. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing that recalls being more than mortal is during that dance, uh, with one hand and no visible effort, he defied the laws of the natural world. Yeah. And there's also that moment in the paragraph that we read in our opening where uh, Eugenides and Irene are dancing and it says that each of them reached in with one hand and out with the other, which is very similar to an incident that happens in a short story where Eugenides suddenly appears to have two hands. And it's in those moments where he 
like appears to be most channeling the god eugenides mm -hmm. because the difference between like he looks very much like eugenides i think he's probably slightly lighter skin but they're both small they both had the scar on their face but the god eugenides has two hands and jen has one hand and so when eugenides the god kind of exists through him he can briefly appear different yeah, I had never taken this sentence in this chapter to be... I had never made that connection. That mm -hmm. is... Wow. Jen has his private conversation with Dee Dee. Basically, what happens in this scene is that Jen takes Dee Dee into the garden and their enemies, and they come out, and Dee Dee falls to his knees in front of him, and then he defects to the king. What? Yeah. <laughs> is the reaction of everyone watching. <laughs> They walk by all the guards, and I picture just all the guards' heads just following them. Because <laughs> they were expecting a completely different interaction. And this is where, like, we're starting to get the momentum that leads to the true nature of eugenities being revealed. Mm -hmm. But right now, Jen has chosen to reveal the truth to Dee Dee privately, because that's... Uh, he's decided that that's worth it. Mm -hmm. Jen has the ability to show anyone at any moment that he means business. You know? <laughs> yeah. If we're going by this, he yeah. just, we're going to go have a conversation. All right? Okay? And then you're going to be loyal to me forever. <laughs> <laughs> what? And it doesn't, that doesn't change anybody else's mind because they're all dumbasses. But now they know that they don't know everything. Yeah. So that's yeah. Which leads to, and is related to, the fact that Costas is starting to think more critically about eugenides. Mm -hmm. When he's watching them in court, he sees that eugenides is asleep, but he suspects that Jen is faking it mm -hmm. just to be provocative. Uh, and he still doesn't really think Jen is listening, but he understands that Jen is doing things for reasons other than the ones that are on, apparent on the surface. Yeah. That's also the scene where they talk about Sophos being abducted, which is the only mention of that in this book, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just like, oh, by the way, uh, <laughs> the barons and Soon is rebelled and Sophos is missing. Which is important to keep track of just, just for figuring out the timeline. timeline. My sense of the timeline for where do Conspiracy of Kings and Thick of Thieves come in is very hazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if they're getting the news of Sophos being kidnapped now, who knows how long ago it happened? Right. Because yeah, information does take time to travel. And it says that uh, like those were rumors when it came to them. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that yet either. There's no time to dwell on the fact that Sophos, a major character from the first book, has been abducted. Jen's only friend. <laughs> Jen's only his one friend. Because uh, three... Atolian spies from the Mede Empire were caught by the Medes and sent back to deliver the message that the Mede army is coming. And then they arrest Relius. Isn't it, aren't they also saying, like, you have no spies left? Like, all the spies in the whole empire? Mm -hmm. Gone. And we're getting that theme again of the Mede heir and Nehusaresh are posturing because they think that they have the upper hand. And that there's nothing that Atolia can possibly do. Mm -hmm. Nahusaresh did not learn his lesson. Yeah. She's, from the Queen of Atolia. She's saying right here, like, doesn't she say, my my enemy's self-confidence or underestimation of me is my biggest asset. Yeah. And he's doing it again right here. 
So Relius is arrested because they're not certain, because the queen's not certain if he just let the Mead spy woman he was sleeping with see too much by accident or if he really did betray them. Yeah, which so, is so wild. Like, Relius up to this point has been so scary and nearly all-knowing and he taught her everything she knows about manipulation and trusting no one and then he got involved with some woman from the village who turned out to be a mead spy and maybe this is another example of men will underestimate women true and probably the smarter they think they are the more likely they are to do that yeah and then something else she says made me think again about her sense of justice in this scene uh the king asks you will observe, meaning, will you observe Relius's torture to get this out of him? And she says, I must. And he says, I can't. And she says, of course not. So I read that I must as another reflection of she doesn't want to be doing this, but she feels like she has to for the good of her nation. Yeah. And if and she's going not- to do something, she's going to be there. Right. She's not going to deny the reality of what's of what she's doing to him by not being there yeah she takes responsibility for everything that she does Mm -hmm. which is a big difference between her and jen jen likes to take credit he doesn't like to take responsibility (laughs) or he doesn't like to be seen taking responsibility yeah so we have that court scene we see jen locks everyone out of his room including costas and bars the door so they can't come in and sejanus wonders like oh why isn't costas necessary this time why doesn't he do that every time? Like, why doesn't he just lock the door and bar it and get Costas out? Which I think is another good question. Seconded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the 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 rumors of how close Costas is becoming to him are not good for Costas. Or for him. And tell me if this is how you've interpreted all of them, but I've always thought that public opinion, I would guess is probably that the king and Costas are sleeping together and that Jen is blackmailing Costas into sleeping with him in those times where he exiles the rest of his attendants. And I think we get evidence of that from Costas's conversation with Baron Souza at the very end of this chapter because the Baron says, I understand that he has requested you for special services, even allowing you to attend him privately. Comically large wink. (sighs) And then later it says, so when Costas is trying to downplay whatever he says and the private audience for a dishonored squad leader so like i feel like that's pretty unambiguous oh yeah i definitely think so especially because later when we get so much use of the word favorite Mm -hmm. that's it's i'm sorry the king's favorite or the queen's favorite is just inherently homoerotic yeah we all saw the movie the favorite (laughs) (laughs) yeah that has connotation a historical basis yes Oh, man. Ah, it's just, it's so interesting and tantalizing that dynamic where Jen gets closer to Costas than he intended. And obviously, like, he has this relationship with Irene that is, like, she's very possessive of him. And that's something that they've agreed upon. And, like, the way that colors the emotion of the fact that he then sends Costas as far from himself as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, thinking of it as Jen does have some feelings for Costas makes that emotion so much richer mm-hmm. and that decision so much more complex. But even if they don't have that element to their relationship, I definitely think that other people think that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably why, like, you know, that adds a whole other layer to 
why does no one think the king and queen are sleeping together? Oh, because he has someone else. Yeah. And, like, there was an assumption that, like, of course he will have someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we haven't gotten there yet, but there's all this maneuvering on trying to get him to pick a mistress. Yeah. Because they just assume, of course he'll have a mistress. Like, partially because, you know, they think the queen hates him, but also it's... Just what's done. Yeah. It says that Atolia's father had concubines in the plural in the last book that was mentioned. That's chapter five. Next time, in a chapter that lasts only 15 pages instead of the 60, that was, that was this one. Costas just keeps trying to do the right thing and the king gets some news he doesn't like. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher,